The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Hello again, and welcome to the 14th episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 10th of June, and in this podcast you will find out more about the latest updates on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, the motion of no confidence against British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the latest polls on the upcoming French parliamentary elections, and the new European Directive on gender equality in large companies. And as always, we will present to you the best editorials and opinion pieces on the war in Ukraine and its effect on European policies and the outcome of the no-confidence motion against British Premier Boris Johnson. And now let's dive right into the most important news of the week. We begin, as usual, with the latest updates on the war in Ukraine. The main theater of the conflict is the city of Severodonetsk in the Donbass. Located in the eastern part of Ukraine and disputed at length between Russia and Ukraine, the Donbass has seen ongoing conflict between the two countries since 2014. The issue of grain supplies in the port city of Odessa also remains unsolved. On the matter, Turkey has offered to create safe corridors for the transportation of grain by ship through the Black Sea. But to date, there isn't yet a definitive agreement and solution. Let us now move to the other end of Europe's map and to the United Kingdom. This week, the Conservative Party, the Tories, voted on a motion of no confidence against party leader and current Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The vote ended in a confirmation of Johnson, with 211 votes in his favour and 148 votes of no confidence. Despite the result, this is the worst outcome of a no-confidence motion against a Conservative Prime Minister. This is the third time a Conservative Premier has faced a no-confidence motion. Two previous instances of no-confidence motions were those against Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. Both were confirmed after the vote, but ended up resigning anyway later on. We now return to continental Europe to talk about opinion polls on the first round of the French parliamentary elections, which will be held this Sunday. According to the latest polls, the vote will be a head-to-head contest between two coalitions of parties. The main contenders will be the new Ecologic and Social People's Union, or NUPES, which includes Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise and Ensemble Citoyenne, which also includes La République En Marche, the party of current president Emmanuel Macron. After the two main contenders, we find the Rassemblement National, whose leader Marine Le Pen challenged Macron in the runoff of the last presidential election. The Rassemblement National is also one of the few parties that won't run as part of a coalition. As shown by opinion polls, Ensemble Citoyenne would lead the electoral race with 28% of potential voters, followed by Nupes with 27.5% and Rassemblement National with 20%. The first round will be followed by a second one to be held on Sunday, June 19th. Now let's talk about the European Union's new legislation on gender equality on the boards of large companies. According to the new directive, women will have to fill at least 40% of the seats on the board of directors of companies listed on the stock exchange in the 27 member states. 
The deadline for complying with the new norm has been set for mid-2026. Companies that fail to comply in time could be fined for not recruiting enough women to their boards or even have their appointments of male directors annulled. Eurostat data showed that last year women held 30.6% of board seats across the EU, but the percentage varies widely from country to country. The most gender-equal countries in this regard are Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium and Germany. By contrast, Hungary, Estonia and Cyprus lag far behind on this issue, with fewer than 1 in 10 women holding senior positions in large companies. We now move on to the first three editorials of the day. Today's first opinion editorial comes from the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Last week, the Ukrainian conflict exceeded 100 days. For columnist Sebastian Gierke, Ukraine's allies must begin to ask themselves where this war is going and what the ultimate goal is. For the Ukrainians and their president Zelensky, the answer is clear, but it is less so for the countries that support them. Those defending themselves against a totalitarian regime can have no doubt. You have to save your homeland, writes Gierke. But can Ukraine win this war? And what would a Kiev victory look like? A return to the territorial borders prior to February 24? Regaining control of the Donbass, now in Russian hands? The columnist wonders. Ukrainian leaders have also floated the possibility of taking back Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. The more ambitious Kiev's war aims become, the more the West's unity will be put to the test. The article reads, insofar that among Ukraine supporters, there are already those who urge it to sign a ceasefire as soon as possible. In this scenario, Gierka concludes, we can only be sure of one thing. Those being attacked have every right to decide for themselves what to fight for. The next editorials, however, reflect on how the war is changing the dynamics and internal politics of the European Union. We go now to France, Le Monde, to hear what the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Joseph Borrell, has to say about this. For Borrell, Europe must develop an effective security and defense policy and become capable of implementing it. That of greater European integration in defense is not a new idea, but the invasion of Ukraine has given it new momentum. Borrell points out that despite the goals collectively set by member states, the latter haven't met them. Moreover, so far, military spending has mostly been conducted at a national level rather than a European one. In 2021, only 8% of military spending in Europe was allocated to joint investments, far from the 35% goal that member states had set for themselves. In this new world scenario disrupted by the Russian invasion, we must equip ourselves with the means to protect ourselves. Legally, the infrastructure already exists, and it encourages coordination of investments and joint research and development activities. What has been lacking so far is a common will to implement it. In conclusion, the European High Representative explains that we need to invest more and do it together. The last comment in the first series of today's opinion editorials comes from the Italian newspaper Corriere della Serra. For journalist Paolo Valentino, the West has shown great unity in reacting to the invasion of Ukraine. Economic sanctions were adopted 
assets of oligarchs close to the Kremlin were seized, and the invaded country was supported militarily and economically. One thing that has been conspicuous by its absence, a strong diplomatic initiative, Valentino writes. It is not that there were no attempts to mediate with Putin, the journalist reminds us, but they were made by individual actors and without coordination. This lack of European diplomatic unity would be due to the inability to reflect on what we want at this stage of European integration. For Valentino, the EU should know how to speak with Putin the language of the stick, that is, the gas embargo and the carrot, namely the easing of sanctions. At the moment, however, Europe does not seem strong and united enough to be able to do this. In conclusion, according to Valentino, as far as European diplomatic efforts are concerned, there is a lot of improvisation, but a coherent common line of action is missing. The second series of editorials focuses on a single topic, the consequences of the failed no-confidence vote against British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The first editorial on the matter comes from Spanish newspaper El País. The Spanish journalists start their argument analyzing the numbers. Johnson won with 211 votes against his ousting out of the total 359 Tory members. But looking at the other side of the coin, 148 MPs voted against Johnson, 41% of the total. A serious figure which does not justify Johnson's euphoria, the columnists argue. Similar historical precedents, such as May, Thatcher and Major, suggest that the political life of a head of government in this situation has its days numbered. For the Spanish journalists, Johnson failed to put forth effective solutions to historical events such as the pandemic, the consequences of Brexit, the crisis in Northern Ireland, the challenge of Scottish independence, and the rising cost of living. More recently, he was also fined for parties held in Downing Street during the lockdown. It's the first instance in history of a prime minister being fined while still in office. In the end, the article says Johnson's tenure will be remembered as a somewhat extravagant interval, and perhaps the Tories will return to the pragmatism and common sense it seems to have disavowed in recent years. For the second editorial on the topic, let us move north and to France, to the newspaper Le Figaro. Columnist Arnaud de Lagrange also starts by analyzing the numbers, but this time those of Johnson's supporters. Of the 211 votes that supported the current Prime Minister, between 160 and 170 hold a government position, so they were personally interested in the cause, de Lagrange notes. If we take these MPs out of the equation, that leaves only around 40 Johnson supporters quite a fragile base. But the biggest hurdle for Johnson might still be ahead. A parliamentary inquiry into the parties held in Downing Street is imminent. Its goal is clarifying whether or not the head of government lied to the House of Commons on purpose, writes the journalist. If so, motion of no confidence or not, Johnson would be forced to resign. But this may not be the last time we hear of Johnson. Repeatedly heralded as politically dead, Johnson is still alive and at the helm. Ahead of the party's fall convention, the Lagrange ends, he has a few months left to prove that he is not the dead man walking his adversaries describe. For the last commentary, we cross the channel and go right to the United Kingdom 
on the newspaper The Guardian. For Rafael Baer, the result of the vote against Johnson marks the beginning of an identity crisis for the Tories. And once Johnson loses office, the editorialist writes, his party will have to come to terms with how it has changed in recent years. Indeed, the Tories' parliamentary majority is stitched together with votes from Nigel Farage's Brexit party if it had not withdrawn candidates from 317 seats now in Tories' hands. This is because, threatened by Farage's party, the Tories shifted to anti-European and anti-establishment positions. Johnson was able to hold together two antithetical aspects of the party, representing the typical British establishment, but presenting himself as an enemy of the establishment, while refocusing voters' anger towards Europe. The Tories reshaped the party in the image of a leader without conscience, integrity or values, other than the pursuit of power, Bear argues. Now, however, Johnson's relationship with this party has gravely soured, as evidenced by the no-confidence motion, and there are many who would like to see someone else in Downing Street. If so many conservatives don't like this Boris they see in front of them, Bear concludes, they should also look in the mirror. We've come to the end of our 14th episode of the podcast The Window on the World. Before closing, we remind you that this Sunday, French people will be called to the polls in the legislative elections to choose the new deputies of the parliament. But on this, we will update you next week. Research and writing for this episode was done by Daniel Rutza. And behind the mic, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, take care and goodbye. <laughs>